Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Black woman. Beautiful. Powerful. Resilient female of African descent with skin kissed by the sun. Conversation. A talk, especially an informal one, between two or more people in which news and ideas are exchanged. We love being black women. Black women are ambitious. Black women are confident. Black women are diligent. We are tenacious. We walk out of our houses put together. We are many shades and personalities of fabulous. But we as black women don't talk about our dilemmas, current events, and what's going on every day that affects us. So... We created this podcast as a way to laugh together, cry together, and have an open conversation about life as black women. Oh, that's deep. Black Women Conversation. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Janine. How's your week been? It's been fun. So um, for those that do not know, Janine and I had not seen each other for 15. It's been more than that. So it's we have been... seen each other since what? 2001, 2002. Yeah. So literally Almost 20 years. 19 years. <laughs> So we saw each other. So I went to DC for the Women in White Coast retreat. As you guys know, I have a book now. And so we had this release this weekend in DC. And guess who I saw after 19 years? Me! Co-host, Johnny! And her husband. So it was fantastic. We finally met. We'll, we're going to have to post pictures Absolutely. On, uh, on social media so that you guys can see that we're like reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> and I got to meet Miss <laughs> Lisa finally. Like I yep. had talked to Miss Lisa on the phone when we were freshmen in college because Miss Lisa was like everybody's mom and I'd never met her. So I finally got to meet Miss Lisa. She is fabulous, by the way. And I got to meet Harrison. Oh, and James too. But Harrison, oh my goodness. Harrison is as adorable in person as he is on the internet. For some reason, he was in love with you. And not saying that you're not lovable, but I was just surprised that he was just like drawn to Janine. I mean, he just kept playing with her, kept talking to her. And James and I was like, what is going on? What's really going on? He's usually not this attached to people that he's seeing for the first time, but he definitely was. He was definitely excited to see her and he was definitely familiar with you, Janine. Definitely it's because familiar. he's used to hearing me talk to you all the time. So he's probably he's probably heard my voice that he probably was like, oh my goodness, this is what the voice looks like. Because in his mind, he just hears me. He does he's never seen me before. So now he's like, Wow, he is super adorable. He is such a big boy. Like I feel like I feel like he's grown already. Harrison can have a full-fledged conversation with you and tell you everything that he wants and what he wants to do and doesn't want to do and he can sit there and watch whatever show he wants to watch and be a good little boy like he is amazing well some things you can't understand we sort of like piecemeal what he's saying piecemeal the words together and like and figure out what he's saying but yeah he's a good kid he, he's definitely a good kid um i don't think that it would be the same if i had like two or three of him but <laughs> for him by himself he's pretty he's pretty good we can keep him calm long enough to do things in in public so Oh, happy about that. So adorable. And now I can't figure out, and I told you this, I can't figure out which one of you Harrison looks like more. Cause I always was like, oh, I think that he looks more like James. And then I was like, no, I think he looks more like you. And now I'm really confused. Now that I've seen the three of you together in person, I'm like, the Harrison just looks like both of you. Like it's a perfect <laughs> combination of the two of you. I think he definitely looks like my husband, but he definitely has his own look too. Like he has his like own unique Harrison look and he has his own unique personality. It, it's funny because no, no, no. he doesn't act. Mm-mm, the personality is you. <laughs> <laughs> 
You think so? A hundred percent. He he does have he has a very unique personality, but I think that the difference between you and Harrison is that Harrison is a boy. But like that personality is one hundred percent unical. He's very oh, determined. Yeah. He's gonna do what he yeah. wants to do, and he's gonna make sure that it gets done. You don't have to do it for him. He's gonna make sure that whatever it is that he needs to get done gets done. Definitely is he definitely is independent, but He's almost independent to a fault. Like he's a, he's, he's bad. Like he can be bad sometimes. Bad. And I'm like, don't do that. And he's like, what? What'd you say? Did you, what? You talking to me? He just does whatever he wants to do. And I'm like, what? Where did I get this baby from? <laughs> he's, he's funny like that. He's not bad though. Know. He's a sweetheart. Harrison is Listen, sweet. As sweet as somebody that's a toddler can be. Toddlers are bad. Okay. <laughs> There's no way to sugarcoat it. They are bad. Like you got, you cannot take your eyes off of them. You have to constantly have eyes on them. They will climb on the table. They will climb on top of stuff. You look around, you try to look for them. They're like on top of the house. They're like just Harrison in sat nice quietly in his high seat and ate his dinner, lunch, I should say, ate his lunch and he was fine. He did not cause a scene. He was not screaming and hollering. He was very, very good. Very good. Mm. I'm just saying, I'm just glad that I did not meet Harrison before I was 100% secure in my decision not to have kids because Harrison would have made me be like, mm, let me think about this for a second. When he was little, he would have definitely made you think about it because he was he was definitely a good like baby. Like nine, 10 month old Harrison. I mean, oh, he was so adorable. He was just so so good. Now he's just like, out of here. (laughs) Just all over the place. But oh, he's so adorable. All right. So, Janine, what's on your timeline this week? Okay. So, it seems, and this is a positive thing, it seems that more of our Brothers and sisters in the African-American community are recognizing the importance of financial literacy. With that, we're also seeing more conversations about financial literacy and subsequently more financial literacy programs emerging to help our communities become more financially sound. One of these programs that I just heard about, which has actually been in existence for a couple of decades, is one that was created by John W. Rogers Jr. And for those who don't know who Mr. Rogers is, he is the the founder, chairman, CEO, and chief investment officer of Aerial Investments, which is the nation's first Black-owned mutual fund firm. And the firm actually manages like $16 billion worth of assets. But Mr. Rogers realized that, you know, it wasn't only important to create a Black-owned mutual fund, But it was also important to educate the African-American community about financial literacy. So he opened up Ariel Community Academy, which is actually a primary school on the south side of Chicago. And so this school doesn't just teach the students about finances and investments, but it actually gives them hands-on investment experience. So it allows them to manage portfolios. And then when the students get to eighth grade and they graduate from eighth grade, they actually get to receive a portion of the profits um, from the portfolios that they had been managing over the years. So Mr. Rogers isn't the only one who's created programs like this to teach communities about financial literacy. Terrence J actually also recently announced that he was partnering with First Boulevard Bank, which is a Black-owned bank, for what they're calling Project Tassel, which is an initiative specifically for HBCU students to teach them financial literacy. And I got most of this information from Black Enterprise, but he, Terrence J. in his interview with Black Enterprise, basically said that he wishes that someone had taught him this information earlier so that he could have made better financial decisions earlier. So financial literacy isn't typically taught, um, especially in the African-American communities, And the wealth gap between Caucasian families and African-American families is astonishing. The typical white family holds a net worth well into the six figures, and the typical African-American family's net worth is not even reaching 20000 So programs like these are super crucial for closing the racial wealth gap uh, for generations to come. I think it's a shame. Uh, I mean, the numbers that you've just uh, told us is just a shame. We have got to do better um, so that we can close this wealth gap because just because 
because we are born into the situation that we're born in doesn't mean that we can't get out. I, I'm a firm believer that this generation will get out. So many people have all of these other side hustles. So I'm thinking maybe these, all of these, your real job, plus all of these other jobs that you're doing on the side to generate more wealth can be something that we use for the future. So I'm hoping that this generation with all that's going on in social media and with online platforms is a way for us to actually have something to pass down to our children. Hopefully, I think that our generation won't see it. I don't think that if we do close the racial gap, I don't think that our generation will see the benefit because it takes this is not something that has happened during our generation. It's happened over several generations, over hundreds of years. And, you know, I think that while we are starting to have those conversations. The conversations haven't been being had long enough that we can start turning things around for our generation. But I think that it's important that for our generation, we leave something to the next generation so that, you know, our the next generation isn't starting off at zero with nothing the way that we did and our parents did. Right. Because all it takes is like us right now to say, you know what? We're going to get some life insurance policy. So if we happen to die, we are going to leave this half a million dollars or a million dollars or however much it is, a hundred thousand dollars, however much it is to our family so that they can have something that they own. Now it's going to take the people that we leave it to though, to actually also leave something for their children, right? The goal is to leave something for your children's children. And um, right now, I think you're right, Janine, it's going to be hard for us right now to say we're leaving enough for our children's children. That's going to be hard unless we have children that are also making money and and we're investing in them early so that they have their own money so that when we give them, leave them money, they already have a cushion to sit on so that that money will automatically go to their children. So it's making sure we're investing in our children early and their futures early. So, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer, like, if you are living check to check, I'm sorry, there's some luxuries you shouldn't be afforded. So everybody wants their hair look good. You you don't need you don't need bundles. I'm sorry. You don't need bundles. We need to do better with our financial decisions than than we're doing right now. Yeah, I think that there's certain things like, you know, obviously living above your means is ridiculous, right? Especially when if you're trying to leave wealth for the next generation. But I think that even before you get to, you know, not having bundles, if you're living check to check is not going into debt and living within your means, period. Bundles should not even be on the radar, right? Like if that's not like, you know, the one thing that I learned in 2020 is that there are a lot of things that I can do on my own. When we couldn't go to the hairdresser, guess what? Janine, who's used to going to the hairdresser every two weeks, guess what she figured out how to do? Her hair. I, it mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't my preference. But guess what? When you can't do something, you learn really quickly how to get it done on your own. When I couldn't mm-hmm. go to the nail salon, guess what I figured out how to do? My nails. And guess how much cheaper it was than going to the nail salon, right? Now, when you don't have that kind of money or it, you know, you're in between situations. There are some things that we have to cut out, but we still have to be cognizant of it in order to know, hey, this is a time where maybe I should cut back. And I think that if we haven't learned anything in 2020, we should have learned how to figure out how to deal with the or live with the bare minimum. 2020 taught us that. Or at least I agree. I agree. So to help us discuss financial literacy, we have a very special guest with us. And he is actually our first male guest on the show. So we're really excited about him. And he is Mr. Jacob McCoyo. Mr. McCoyo is an avid proponent of bringing awareness to the racial wealth gap. With over 20 years of experience in financial services, numerous anecdotal observations and experiences have opened his eyes to the unique challenges challenges facing communities of color as they wrestle with developing wealth. Jacob, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be a part of it. So, you know, it wasn't until now that I realized that you were the first male, right, Janine? Like, yes, we're so excited. Am I tripping? 
no, this is our first male guest. Are you excited? It's super special. So you get to be the first one. I'm not afraid. I'm glad. (laughs) He's not afraid. Before we get into scenarios, um, I just want to ask. So, you know, you are a financial guru. So, of course, we're going to pick your brain a little bit. So what are some common mistakes that people make when it comes to finances? So um, particularly as we think about our community, um, especially the black community, but, but definitely communities of color, we, a lot of times because it took so much for us to get the money that we have, a lot of times we get really unnerved or uneasy about putting that money to risk. We don't want to lose it. But that creates a huge challenge because really one of the best ways to get your money to work for you is to expose it to it. And so even, and we see this happening even among the super affluent, pinpoint to very wealthy black families, and you'll see that they own more conservative or more, or I should say, less risky investments than even their you know, equally wealthy white counterpart. And because of that, they end up earning less. And so there's a strong relationship between the amount of risk you take and the amount of money you make. And as a community, we really need to tap into that relationship and understand that, hey, it's okay for us to take some risk. We need to start thinking that way so that we can get our money to work for us. Okay. I thought you were going to tell me that we don't save enough, you know, like we should be putting 20% to the side or something. But you're saying that we actually need to take more risk. What I'm saying is, yeah, that, uh, and frankly, actually, a lot of us in the community have been saving. The problem is we stick it in the savings account. Some of us are even still putting it under the mattress. We don't want to lose this much. Like we are that dead serious about not losing money. Why? Because it's was a lot to, it took a lot to get it right like the struggle is real for us it's not that easy for us even to get the job that we have so we don't want to lose anyone but the reality is that once we've saved the money what it looks like is a lot of us even though we have time we don't need that money right away you know we need to start thinking about hey since we do have time on our side we're still relatively young we still have a number of years left to work we can put that money to work for us and that means putting to risk ultimately yeah that value that you put in it might come down but as long as we have enough time Historically, what we've seen is it comes back, and sometimes it comes back two or threefold, and that's where we're missing out. And we need to look. We need to look at the long game. That's a that's a key thing that I would probably say that our community gets away from. Okay, so for those who say that, yeah, I I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to say, okay, savings isn't gonna isn't gonna cut it, and I'd like to make have my money work for me. Where would you suggest that they risk their money and not take too big of a risk, let's say? Yeah, so let's just start with savings accounts and what they're earning right now. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I actually had a friend who's like, Jacob, can you help me? I have some money. I need to use it soon. But what kind of interest can I get? And right now, it is about, I think the best rate I found online was 0.3%. And so... You know, it's actually pretty good for a savings <laughs> <laughs> Right now, I guess you could say that's pretty good for a savings. But you, as, I mean, I think the the point is not lost on you that that you're not going to be able to, you know, you're not writing home every day telling all your friends about the 0.3 percent you're getting savings. It's just not a lot. Whereas when you invest in the market, if you invest in the stock market, now you're talking about six, seven, eight, nine percent rates of return. Now that's something that if you can get nine percent rates of return, you can start to think over 10, 20 years, you know, your investment could actually double, if not triple. So, so those are the types of investments. That's why we think about, hey, if you're going to store money. We want to think about how can we grow that money in a way that really has a meaningful impact. It goes to us. To answer your question, Janine, I think it gets a little bit more complicated because it's important for everyone individually to understand 
their financial situation, right? So if you are working, you have a steady income, that's going to allow you to take more of a risk when you invest, right? Because you know, okay, I'm probably going to be in this job for the next five, maybe even 10 years. I'm not going to need this money. And I have time on our side. I guess the one key takeaway, if any takeaways you would want to get from my conversation here with you today is that time is what you need on your side when you're investing. Anytime you're looking at investing in the market, you want to think about how much time you have available because that's really what that time horizon is really what's going to allow you to let your investment run and grow and turn into significant amounts of wealth. So when you say time, it, how much time are you talking? Because you said we're, we're relatively young. I mean, what is relatively young for you? For our <laughs> listeners, if they're, you know, if they're 30, I can understand that. But what if they're 50? Is that still enough time to invest? When one wants, when a financial advisor wants to give advice, they really need to understand the situation of that individual. Because to your point, Nicole, to me, 10 years isn't a long time, but to someone else who's trying to flip this money and make it work so they got it for next year, like that 10 years is not enough. It's too long. That's too long. And so to that end, what I can tell you is when it comes to the market and when it comes to investing, we're talking about time in the terms of, in terms of what we call sequence of return, okay? So this term is what we often use to describe the way the market performs. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. But over a certain set number of years, we know that you're going to finish higher than when you started. That's what the market shows us. And that's what we know is true. And that's a core part of what financial education is about, is to help people understand that what's happening when you invest is that there's this sequence of return. And the longer time that you have available, the more likely you are to be higher than when you started. And that's just the way the market works. And so that's the part of investing in education that, you know, our community really has to come to terms because a lot of times when, in my experience, I found a number of us in the, in our community will think about investing and they automatically think Atlantic City. They automatically think gambling. And that's not actually true. And I've often had conversations with people. I'm like, Hey, do you shop at Target? And they'll say, yeah, I love Target. And they'll say, do you expect to be shopping at Target in a couple of years from now? And they'll say, yeah, why wouldn't I? I love Target. Well, how about five years from now? Well, yeah, I love Target. I don't see myself. Why are you asking me? Well, because if you want to invest, you could potentially invest in a company like Target. And it's going to be there five years from now because you just told me, and I'm sure there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people like you that are going to keep shopping at Target. So when you think about risk and you think about investing, like that's a, that is much different than betting a whole lot of money on black at the roulette table. That's a whole different animal. But like what I'm basically trying to articulate is that there's a real difference between investing and gambling. And our community hasn't fully come to terms with that. And with education, I think we can overcome that. But what I'm talking to you about, Nicole, when you talk about how much time, the more time we have, the better the opportunity is for us. We can make more in the market. You can make more when you have more time. But even if you're in your 50s, Look, most people are working into their 60s and 70s. There's a lot of people that don't even retire until they're 75. They like what they're doing. They don't want to retire. So some people might be shaking their heads right now. They're like, I am not working <laughs> past 60. I'm done at 60. But, but what are you going to, I often ask people, like, what do you, like, oh, I'm going to travel. I'm going to, but then after you've done all that, then what do you, so then it becomes a very real, and, and frankly, yes, I've encountered individuals who have, you know, they got to retirement and now they're bored. You know, they didn't realize how much time they spent at work. <laughs> but 
the point here really is just to say, hey, the more time that you have, the better, because that's how you can pretty much um, feel better about the types of returns you can get in the market versus getting it in a savings account. Okay, so what about, what would you say to those people who aren't quite ready to invest? They're you know maybe just just able to save some money. They're they just have six months worth of expenses. The pandemic hit and now they're they're struggling. What do you say to those people and what do they do so that eventually they can get to the point where they can invest? So I would say that, again, I think especially as I think about our community, the black community and especially black women, I would say uh, oftentimes black women are the ones who do have a dependable income. And so I would say that the one thing that they want to be mindful of, probably one tool that I think we underutilize is these employer-sponsored plans. What are you talking about, Jacob? We're talking about 401ks, 403bs, the risk saving plan. These are those plans that at work you can sign up for and maybe you put a little percentage, one or two percent, and the reality is you can put, depending on your income, you can get north of 10% into these plans. The thing about these plans is that they do two things for us. Number one is they shield us from taxes when you invest in them. And so that's a huge accelerator for growth for us because now we're not having to pay taxes as we go along. That money stays in the account and accumulates. Number two it's hard to get at this money. <laughs> you can't just go, you know, tap the, the ATM and get the money out. No, there's all kinds of rigmarole. But guess what? That's what helps. Why? Because if you can, again, it goes back to that, set it in there and forget it, let it ride for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, you'll be surprised how much a little bit of money can turn into a very large sum. And so it's the, it's taking advantage of these accounts. If you have 26 k periods in a year, the maximum you can put into a uh, employer-sponsored plan is $750 a pay. Sounds like a lot, but when you actually break it down, $750 a pay for 26 Days, that's 19500 That's actually, well, of course, if you're 50 or younger, you can put a little bit more if you're older than that. But the point I'm trying to make is if you can do that, 750 a pay, and you can do that for, I believe it's 20 years. So if you start when you're 30 and you can get 10% of return in the market, which is a high rate of return, but if you get that for 20 years, you will have over a million dollars. So you can use these accounts to become a millionaire, right? But we don't know that. Like they just tell us, oh, just put your 3% in. Da, 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 da. Like, no, like there's a real opportunity here to build up. Hey, look, even if you don't get to a million, what if you get to half a million? Would you really be complaining? Right. <laughs> no. That's true. Right? The key is that if we take advantage of these plans, if we take advantage of what's already available to us, we can build wealth. And so that's part of what, you know, I think the financial education for our community needs to be about. So I would start there. Not everyone has access to an employer-sponsored plan. I think that's a great place to start if you have one. Another place to go, you could set up um, traditional or Roth IRAs. Um, and then, um, I mean, I'm not going to say don't go to Robinhood or some of those other, you know, brokerage, online brokerage firms to dabble in the market. But I do, I am in favor of our community getting more and more exposure to equity. I think that is how we build our wealth. We, we're not going to be able to, to bridge the racial wealth gap without you. That makes sense. Look. COVID happened in 2020. That was one of the worst years in the history of, uh, for, the, for the United States. The market had one of its best years in 2020. Sort of going back to this racial wealth gap, like my heart breaks because it just means that our community, because of our approach, you know, a lot of times we just didn't, we weren't in there. I mean, there's a lot of us who had cash available to move into the market and didn't move. And so I think it's, it's definitely hard. I'm not trying to beat up on anyone here. I'm just trying to say that, hey, you know, if 
you have this comfort around investing. And I, I wouldn't, I would strongly encourage what we found that the statistically the evidence shows that working with an investment advisor does um, increase the likelihood that you will be invested. You know, you'll have more comfort. And then also statistically, you'll typically perform better. But, but again, I applaud you for, you know, looking into the market. It's a lot of times, yes, we can overcomplicate it. Our, our industry overcomplicates investing, um, but sometimes it's just as simple as, you know, understanding the companies that you, you know, the companies you go to, you buy, when you go to the store shopping, you pretty much stick to the same brand. Yeah. We all stick to our brands. We know what they are. And so it's like, you know, thinking about that, it's like, okay, well, what brands do you like? Where do you, where do you spend your money? You know, those are the types of things where if you buy and hold, the buy and hold strategy is probably the most successful strategy. Um, in fact, it is the most successful proven strategy when you're investing and it's simple. It's a simple strategy. And so I think a lot of times that community gets just doesn't just need to know that, and then that sort of increases the likelihood that they, they make the right investments. Now that we've talked about real stuff, <laughs> real complicated business, let's get to these scenarios and help our listeners some. Some of these are not as complicated. I mean, this is like nitty-gritty, like long-term planning. We're trying to help people right now. So we hope you're ready. We hope you're ready. We hope you're ready, Jacob. I'm ready. Okay. All right. This letter reads, Nicole and Janine, I have a boyfriend I've been involved with for nine years now. He's the father of my five-year-old son. We live in two different households by my choice because we split a few years back when we did live together and I never moved back in once we reconnected. Either way, my boyfriend's car recently broke down. He's gotten it fixed several times, but now it's costing him more than it's worth. He currently drives a Mercedes C300. He asked me to co-sign for a new car. He's looking at a Tesla S model because this is his dream car. At first, I was reluctant, but with the amount of money he's spending on repairs with the current car, I know he can afford, afford the car note. Plus, he makes a decent amount of money as a social worker. I know he needs a car to get to and from work because our city doesn't have a good public transportation system. Plus, he helps uh, transport our son to and from school and various events. So I'm thinking about helping him out. Do you think this is a mistake? I'm pausing a moment because I'm trying to figure out if this is a relationship question or a financial question. Right? It is a and financial just, question. We want you to answer from a financial perspective, and then you can give us the relationship take too, because I know that relationship matters, right? Well, and it's funny because I mean I'm being slightly facetious here, but I, you know, I almost do want to defer to what you know you or Janine are going to say. We probably are on the same wavelength on this, but at the end of the day, what really matters is the. You know, when it comes to these types of financial decisions, I mean, it's going to matter how committed this relationship is, right? Because if it's, you know, it's not that they have to be married, but, you know, frankly, the situation is different if they're married. But if they're super committed to each other, then, you know, she needs to make the right decision for her family, uh, for that family, for that, for that arrangement that they have. Um, what I would say is, you know, absent that, you know, if, if there's any question about the level of commitment there, then really, yeah, she needs to be aware that that obligation that she's signing up for is, is hurt. Um, and frankly, I'm not even really speaking from a financial professional perspective at all here. I'm just sort of calling, you know, the balls and strikes as they are, right? Like, this is really about just recognizing that the legal obligation is hers if she's going to go out on a limb for her significant other. And, you know, if she's cool with that come hell or high water, that's fine. But she needs to know that that's her obligation. It won't be his if, you know, for whatever reason, he decides he wants to go a different direction. You're being nice. I'm going to give the relationship side of it since you said that you're going to defer to us for it. And absolutely. here's the here's what I say. Absolutely not. Do not co-sign for this car. You sound crazy. If he cannot afford it without you co-signing, he does not need that car. 
point blank period. If he wants you to make that kind of commitment to him by signing your name on the dotted line to be responsible for a Tesla, then he can sign his name on the dotted line at the bottom of a marriage certificate. I'm not interested in signing, co-signing for anyone, especially someone who I have a child with and I don't have, have a commitment to. Is it because he doesn't want to be married? Do you not want to be married? Have you all not discussed this? I think that there's some things that need to take place prior to you signing for a car, especially a Tesla. I mean, if you feel like he needs you, you know, really riding out for him and you feel like he needs to take your child back and forth to wherever your child needs to go, have him get a Toyota Corolla. I'm sure he can afford that or have him get a car that is within his means. Here's the thing. If you know that he can pay the money because he's been paying for the repairs, you know, he has the money, then he needs to buy a car that he can afford to pay each month. It seems logical to me. I feel like we. this is another example of how we need to be more selective, more selective with our vaginas, because guess what? You've had a child by someone that can't afford a car, right? He needs a cosigner. Grown men don't need cosigners, period. You should not need a cosigner. And if I'm not married to you, I'm not cosigning. I'm sorry, I'm not cosigning. Because if I want to walk away from you and get with somebody else that has better credit, then obviously I'm still stuck to you. I'm already bound to you by this five-year-old, which we love the babies. So we're not going to complain about that. Somebody got lost in the sauce, had a baby, fine. But what I'm not going to do is be stuck to you financially. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I think it's a crazy situation. He can go ask his mama to co-sign. He can ask his brother or sister to co-sign. He can go ask his best friend to co-sign. He don't need to ask you to co-sign. Uh-uh. He can co-sign for you. You shouldn't co-sign for him. And I know that's a double standard, but hey, listen, y'all know I'm from the South. And so I believe that chivalry should not be dead. And that does include you buying me a car, you co-signing for my car if I need you to co-sign for it. And maybe I don't need you to co-sign for it because financially I'm straight, but maybe I want to put you on the hook so you can financially be responsible for that. That's just me. So, but I do not agree with women co-signing for men's cars. I just don't, I don't agree with it. He can carpool. You can go pick your child up. You can arrange for another parent to bring your child home. But no, I would be like, no, babe, I don't have it. And I would then go and look for somebody with better credit. Amen. Okay. So I have another letter and this one says, hi, ladies, I'm just going to get right to it. I'm a 40 year old IT professional. I'm single with no kids. I make good money and do well for myself. I have a sister who I love dearly. She is also an IT professional and we actually work at the same company. Yes, she and I are twins. She, however, is married and has two children. Her husband works for the government and makes good money as well. But my sister is always broke. I've tried numerous times to give my sister some financial pointers, but she does not listen. Instead, she and her husband would rather wear the latest designer clothes, drive the nicest cars that they purchase and only keep for a few years. And to add insult to injury, they eat out almost every night when they have a refrigerator full of food. She doesn't often ask me for money, but recently it's become more frequent. She is my sister and I don't mind helping, but I also don't want to go broke trying to help her and her family. More so, I'm concerned that my niece and nephew will have to take out student loans when their parents make more than enough to set aside money in a college fund. How can I help get my sister on track so that my niece and nephew are set up financially for their future? So do you want the short answer or the long answer? We'll go with whatever answer is is the most complete. How about that? (laughs) Now look who's being diplomatic. So... (laughs) I would say that, I mean, the short answer is you can't manage someone else's finances. That's what you're trying to do. You want, you see how they're spending money, but you're trying to be in their pocketbook telling them how to do it, except that they say, hey, please come take over my finances for me. You're always going to have that tension. I think that it's just a, a level too high to reach for a twin sister. And by the way, I have a twin brother and he's, you know, I want to put him on blast, but, (laughs) you know, it's different. Okay. So, you know, trying to get in 
their finances and make choices for them, I mean, that's just a really tall order that you're trying to pursue. What I would strongly recommend in this situation is, you know, as much as you love your sister, to continue as if she's open to having these conversations. Hey, what are we doing? You know, um, I guess another shout out to financial professionals. This is something that we, you know, we, a lot of us have learned how to have those conversations, how to talk to people about that. But at the end of the day, I mean, having been in this business long enough, I've met people who are earning 500, 600, 750, you know, $750,000 a year and spending every single dollar of it. So you get an increase, you get a 10% bump up, you get a 25%, you change jobs, your income goes up 10, 15,000. 90% of people close to that number, their expenditures will match up to the increase almost instantly. One of the hardest things to do is to be like, nope, we're not going to, we're not spending that extra. I know we got more, but we're staying right where we are. That is one of the hardest things to do. If you put kudos to you, because that's how wealth is developed. That's how you develop wealth. But most people, it's really hard to develop that discipline. So what you, it seems like what you're asking your twin sister to do in this situation is hard to do that. And yeah, it's noble. And I appreciate you wanting to talk to your sister about it. I would say keep talking, but sort of lower your own expectations on how, whether or not she will convert or they will convert as a couple to doing what you're recommending just so that you don't get disappointed. But yeah, I think that's kind of where I would go with that question. I don't want to say yes, no, or maybe I just kind of want to put it that way. Great diplomatic answer. I think that as opposed to trying to convince your sister about changing her habits, why not just invest in the children's education yourself? Like set aside some of your income that the money that you would be giving your sister when she asked for money, just tell your sister, unfortunately, I can't do it. And then set aside the money on your own so that your niece and nephew can go to college just in case. And then if they don't need it, then you've just saved a bunch of money for yourself. You cannot be in other people's pockets. And when I was single, making basically the same amount of money I'm making now with a child and a husband, it's a different level. It is different. You will spend a lot more money when you have a kid or when you're married. The expectation for you to actually do things with your spouse um, and go places and celebrate an anniversary and celebrate birthdays and, you know, buy little Timmy the things he needs for class and make sure he has exposure to different cultures. It is not a responsibility you have to think about about when you don't have kids. And when you're talking about the same exact amount of money with the kid and without a kid, oh yeah, I mean, that money will go 10 times longer for somebody that does not have kids that has kids. So one, I would think you need to stop criticizing your sister and how she spends her money. That's number one, because you don't really know what she's spending. You don't know what kind of medical bill she has. You don't know what kind of insurance coverage they have. You don't know what her expenses are. So you can't count people's coins unless you know every different avenue that they're spending their coins in. So you don't know. So just breathe and do not think that your sister has the same exact resources spending the same exact way that you do because that is not the truth if you are single and she is married with a child and so what Janine said is the only thing you can do you want to set up a 529b for your niece and nephews and you want to stick to that put their name and social security number on it great they will have a little college fund that they can put to the side if they get full rides great they can buy themselves a house that's all other than that if you don't like how your sister spend her money Say no. You don't have to help her. You can say no. It's interesting you bring this up. So as as you both know, I spend a lot of time looking into, you know, what really is the makeup of the racial wealth gap. And your audience may already know that, you know, the, the racial wealth gap is where white families have almost 10 times the wealth of black families. And some of the... Uh, research that I've read, particularly from the Brookings Institute and Sandy Darity, an economist that some of your audience may also know, has really broken down how a lot of that, the most significant component of why there's such a wide difference is generational wealth, that we're not really passing wealth 
on to the next generation. Every every generation starts from zero. And so that's something that we need to start changing um, as much as we can. That's part of the work. Not That's not all of it. We can talk about all the other stuff, reparations and all the other stuff. We can talk about that. I think there needs to be a much larger conversation. But what can we do individually? You know, part of that conversation is that but when when they looked at the Brookings Institute looked at that and they said, hey, another key factor that was going on when you look at that gap is in, within black communities and the black family, there always seems to be a time where one family member is shelling out for another family, not necessarily in that nuclear family. I think it's interesting, Nicole, that you're encouraging the no, because maybe that's what we need to start thinking about, like the no, because we do that and we do what we do for family. Like, look, at the end of the day, I think we all get it. Like, we understand why she's coming out of pocket for that. But at the same time, it's like we need to start thinking seriously about when we're going to do that. Because, at, you know, there are going to be times where you're not going to be able to say maybe this is one of the times where you can say no. But at the end of the day, this expenditure is one of the reasons why there's a gap in the first place. Not the only reason, and certainly don't beat yourself up over that, but, but be mindful of, hey, we need to be putting aside as much as we can to create that generational wealth. I mean, that's that money that could probably sit in an account for 20 years and double and triple because you didn't really need it, right? And so now all of a sudden you got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars from a, you know, 1300 spend, however much money that was. But it's just something to think about when we think about that wealth gap. My business partner, he calls it the black tax. Like there's someone in the family that's playing this black tax. What's the black tax? That's the one that's always, boom, getting hit up. And we need this. Oh, Shorty needs that. Oh, Junior needs this. Oh, so-and-so is like, what? And it's like, and and yes, that money doesn't come back. So the reason why I'm going the diplomatic route on this is we have to be mindful of the reality, right? Systemic racism is still oppressing the whole community. Like, whether you're feeling it or not, the community is feeling it. And the, so individually, you might not be feeling it in the moment, but the reality is that there are portions of our community, family members that are being impacted by it. And so when we think about, like, this gets me all riled up, like, this is why I'm so passionate about the racial wealth gap, because it's not happening by accident. This is a systemic thing. And when you, and just to kind of go on a tangent for a second, when you think about COVID outcomes, why did it impact our community? You cannot divorce that result from the racial wealth gap. Why, Jacob? How is that possible that it's related? I'm so glad you asked. The reason is, <laughs> the reason is when we think about when, when our communities decide where should we put the next hospital? Right? Mm. Like, we're not thinking, let's put it in the diverse community because there's so many people moving into that neighborhood. No, we're thinking about the money. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, these real estate values are improving significantly. This can support a county hospital. This can, and so now, you know, when there should be a hospital, you know, not even a bus stop away, we got to catch the bus four or five bus stops just to get to our doctors sometimes. And so, like, those outcomes are directly directly related to the amount of wealth our communities have. And so for that reason, we have to be cognizant. We have to be aware that this wealth gap is not something to be ignored. It's something that we need to be thinking about all the time. And individually, yes, collectively as individuals, we can have an impact. It's not going to solve it, just our community. We need white people to galvanize and mobilize. But our community can do some things. And the main reason I'm bringing up that wealth gap in this particular instance is that our family members who ask for money, guess what? This is when I get teary-eyed because I know our community members, you know, there's some grandmothers and grandfathers that gave their last dollar to get you know, junior out of jail, right? Like, 
that was the wealth that was going to be transferred, right? But the system is set up, you know, the judicial system. So I was just talking about the health system and how that's impacted. But the judicial system is taking our money too. And so it's like, hey, there's so much. So I'm just kind of trying to build sort of this background that says, okay, you know, because I too want to be like, I am done writing text to anybody who is not going to return this money and act like they're going to return Like, you're not going to return it. So the one piece of advice I would leave you on that particular topic, though, is I've learned was just only stop lending the money. Just give what you can afford. So it's like, all right, so I'm going to come to you. They're going, I need 5000 Like, you don't have, you can't. Give them what you can afford to give them. Hey, look, I can't, I no longer lend family members any money now, um, but I'll give you what I can give you. That's so nice. That's so nice. I ain't doing that. No, I'm not doing it. Because if people are asking me if they're getting their hair and their nails done, and I don't have my hair and my nails done, and you're asking me for four or $500 because you need to get your hair and your nails done. What? No, I'm not going to do that. I am not going to do that. And just because you mismanage your money, because sometimes, Jacob, it is mismanagement of money because people think that they are going to get saved later on. Well, you knew your electricity bill was going to be due at the end of each month. So Mm -hmm. you mean to tell me you got your hair and your nails done at the beginning of the month, knowing that you had electricity bill due at the end of the month. That is not my fault that you have piss poor planning. Not my fault. Not my (laughs) fault. But I'm going to say no, because if if I say yes, even though I'm like, oh, I feel bad. My niece and my nephew are going to be in the cold, whatever, whatever. No, you. I, I really feel that you will make a way and figure out how to make that work if I say no. But if I say yes, then what's going to happen? And next week, you're going to get your hair and your nails done again, right? Knowing that at the end of the month, you're going to have the same bill. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Not going to do it. And I also stand by the judicial system is definitely a messed up system. I think that black and brown people are you know, getting harsher sentences, which means that they have more legal fees. I completely get that. I'm just not the one that's going to help bail you out. Think twice before you do anything. You know you're going to get a harsher sentence. You know you're going to get a harsher sentence than anybody else. You know it. So don't come asking me. Don't don't ask me. I'm sorry. Jacob, this is the same one that would probably be like, oh, my God, what happened? Let me help. Just FYI. <laughs> I've turned over a new lease. I'm telling you, I, I can't. Mm-mm. I'm, I want to see how long this lasts. Let me tell you something. Nicole, she will say this so far. She will say this. Right. But I've seen Nicole and I'll be like, Nicole, what? What did you you loaned? What? OK. okay. And that's okay, why I'm not Nicole. doing it anymore. Mm-mm. No. I I anyway. hope I hope that you stick with it. I really do. But I just I'm a little skeptical. I'm just saying you are super generous, Nicole. And that's why I feel like you're adamant about changing your ways. But I don't know that you're not going to help people out. I'm not going to do it. I just <laughs> feel like when you're the person that's always helping and I'm old enough now to know that people will not help you if they're that's not true. helpers. And you're a person that's a fixer and a giver. You're going to constantly be a fixer and a giver. And you're going to constantly be disappointed when people are not supportive. And it's not even supportive on a financial level. It's just supportive overall. Like you can't even support and acknowledge me, but you want me to give you $10,000. You can't subscribe to this podcast, but you want to ask me to borrow money. Word. And you're not even supporting that. But you asked me for money? Like, that's what I'm talking about, Jacob. Not even like, oh, you can't pay me back. But like, you literally can't support anything that's not you. I ain't doing it. That's a good point. Like, therefore, the, therefore, therefore themselves are not for the cause. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. You can't be for I'm the cause. Really. They're not for the cause. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not doing that. All right. So at this portion of the show, we usually say what we knew this week. So, Jacob, if you want to tell us what you've learned new this week, it can be about anything. It can be lighthearted. It can be serious. But um, tell us a little bit about what you learned new this week. And then Janine and I will share what we learned. No pressure. I did just learn. I've been doing a lot of research on wealth in America and how the system is really just set up for, unfortunately, it's really geared towards white families. And things that I learned 
is, believe it or not, and maybe for some people this seems like it would be obvious, but even something as simple as the way the tax code is written is really it favors white families. And you would think that it's all based on just how much income you have, because that's how the code is actually like calculated. But because even just the whole way I was reading, I'm reading now that really talks about how, you know, married filing joint, how that was calculated, the tax code for that versus, you know, when you're married filing joint and you have two incomes versus married filing joint and have one single income, the way you get taxed ends up being this. And basically, with historically, with white families, it, they've usually been married filing joint with one single income. And that favors white families. And it's really, and I'm not sure if you guys have had that conversation about, you know, the percentage of single black families, you know, single moms, like, obviously, fortunately, we're way higher than our white counterparts. But that is, in, in the sense, a black tax. And it was, it's really been, I mean, shocking, but not just been quite revealing when you go down this whole research poll of figuring out more and more about what you know, what our U.S. history looks like as it relates to the African-American experience. Like, really surprising, but not surprising. Jenny, what'd you learn? Okay, so this, I think, is the statistic that you were referring to from the Brookings Institute earlier about the net worth of a household income. So this is what I learned while I was doing the research for this episode, that the average net worth, and again, the, these statistics are from 2016, so there are no updated statistics so far, um, but the household net worth for a white family is about $171,000, whereas the household net worth for a black family is about $17,150. 17000 17000 This particular article attributed a lot of the wealth gap on the fact that white families receive large inheritances, whereas black families do not. That makes sense. I learned that, you know, of course, black women are paid 38% less than white men. We already know that 21% less than white women. But did you know that more than 50% of black and Latinx households have no retirement savings at all? They don't have anything, nothing to retire off of. Who's taking care of them, Jacob? What's the percentage? Over 50%. Yeah, okay. That sounds about right. That that was extremely shocking to me because I'm like, if you have no savings, no retirement savings, meaning you have no retirement account, nothing in the bank at all for your savings account, what happens when you don't work? If you were living from check to check before, is Social Security going to be there to help um, you? Then what somebody happens? else in your family is taking care of you. They're getting the black tax that Jacob was referring to. Someone has to take care of you or you're working till death. Like at the beginning, you know, Jacob said that a lot of people work well into their 60s and sometimes into their 70s. Well, I probably work to I die. Happens. I'm not gonna lie. I probably work to I die. They find me in my office dead. That they. Oh they my probably god, will. Nicole. I'll probably work part time. <laughs> but I love my job, and I probably would work until I die. So I will probably be that person that's like 85, like still doing consoles on the side. <laughs> I'm still doing lectures or something. I'm going to teach something. I'm going to do something probably until I die just because and I, I want to travel. I want to do things. I w- would want to. Hopefully Harrison has some cheering and I have some great grand cheering by then. But I would probably need to do something. Thank you so much, Jacob, for coming on the podcast today. We have thoroughly enjoyed you. Thank you for giving us all these little pearls of excellence so that we can take it back and we can definitely think about ways to invest so that we can grow our financial freedom. Let the people know how they can follow you on social media. Hey, for now, you can. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. It's been a joy. I hope you invite me back. Um, You can definitely find me at on Instagram, MJM Experience, MJM Experience on Instagram. I'm there. I am happy to say hello and share more tidbits if you want to follow me on Instagram. Perfect. We will definitely be following you along. And uh, yeah, we will probably be reaching out to you for some more <laughs> for some more financial tips. So, um, so thanks so much. And here's our motivational moment for the week. And it says... 
Real freedom is having your very own. So get your coins, ladies. Keep grinding until you have so much cash flow that you can't count it. And of course, that means, of course, we're coming from Jacob. That means that you need to invest, okay? Until we meet again. Pray, work, slay. And show off your melanated excellence. Bye. Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations is produced by Nicole Lee Plenty and Janine Brunson-Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Get the Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or where you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. You can follow Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations on IG at Oh, That's Deep, BWC. Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.